0: Jeremiah chapter 52. We come to the last chapter in Jeremiah. It's an epilogue. And scholars are divided over its authorship, but united in the sentiment that it wasn't written by Jeremiah. The chapter... Relates the capture of Jerusalem in verses 1 through 11. The destruction of Jerusalem in verses 12 through 23. And then the exile to Babylon in verses 24 through 30. And then the liberation of Jehoiachin in verses 31 through 34. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, Jeremiah died. An old man. Probably in Egypt. And like the grave of Moses. His burial place is a mystery. Remember what we've learned. Jeremiah was a broken hearted prophet. With a broken hearted message. Sin had taken its toll on the nation. And on the people of God. And Jeremiah faithfully labors for 40 years. With a constant clanging message. Warning. Judgment is on the way. And Jeremiah bathes that hard and harsh message in a constant bath of tears. Let me be clear. Judgment can never be divorced from hope. Because even in the midst of judgment, there is mercy and there is grace. And Christians are given a way of escape in the person of Jesus Christ. Those who believe and trust in Jesus will find their sins forgiven and their future secure. Remember, 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 Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. He is the ultimate deliverer. And so the chapter describes the fall of Jerusalem. And the world power, Babylon, will utterly destroy the city and exile the survivors. When future generations come to Jerusalem, they'll pick up the book of Jeremiah. They'll read its words. They'll revisit the chapters. And they'll remember the lessons about warning, about rebellion, and about sin Let's look at verses 1 through 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord. Underline that. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. I know it's hard for some people to believe that God is watching. According to all that Jehoiakim had done for because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah till he finally cast them out from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now, it came to pass in the ninth month of the year, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of that month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city wall was broken through and all the men of war fled and went out of the city at night by way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were near the city all around and they went by way of the plain. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and, They overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamat. And he pronounced judgment on them. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And he killed all the princes of Judah in Riblah. He also put out the eyes of Zedekiah. And the king of Babylon bound him in bronze fetters and took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. When it says that Zedekiah was 21 years old in the opening verse, when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, it gives the name of his mother, Hamutah, the daughter of Jeremiah Libna, not the Jeremiah who's written this book. And it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. In other words, unlike his great grandfather, he didn't tear down the walls. He didn't tear down the wicked places. He didn't tear down the idols. But he continued in a lifestyle and a commitment to wickedness. And God could see clearly Zedekiah's foolish and stubborn heart. We know that God sees into the heart of our leaders. God sees also into our heart. And for Zedekiah, his refusal was an invitation to judgment. And by the way, if we've learned anything from the book of Jeremiah, it is this, that rebellion against God is an invitation to judgment. It's it's like sending out an invite and going, uh, Lord, you see my wickedness, my folly, my hard hearted and my rebellion. Uh just sending you a little note that I can expect judgment at any moment. That's exactly the case. He condemned himself. And he condemned his nation. The Lord, and see I, I want you to understand this, he also did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord expects that our heart will be open and sensitive and submissive to his will and his word. But some people don't really believe that some people believe, well, God understands that I'm a human and God understands that I make mistakes. And God understands that hopefully sometime in the not too distant future, I'll stop doing the weirdness and the wickedness and I'll finally submit. Again, if we've learned anything at all from the book of Jeremiah, It is, please, please understand something. God really does expect your heart to be open. God expects you to listen to what he has to say. God expects you to understand that wrong is not right and good is not evil. Over and over again, the command is given. Don't be hard hearted. Don't be stubborn. Don't be stiff necked in Acts chapter seven, verse 51. It says the heart of this people is waxed gross and their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes have closed lest They should see with their eyes. And hear with their ears and understand with their heart and that they should be converted so that I can heal them. Does God expect us to listen to him? Yes. Does God expect us to see clearly when we open up our Bibles, the course of action and the best way to go? The answer is yes. In Romans 2, 5, it says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath and revelation in the day of judgment. That's interesting in Romans 2, 5, when it says... In direct proportion to your hardness and your refusal to repent, we start up a savings account. And in that savings account, we make a deposit and the deposit is judgment. In verse 3, it says, For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, till he finally cast them out from his presence. In other words, remember Jeremiah's reminding them it wasn't a fluke. It wasn't just that Babylon was an oppressive nation that decided to consume everyone in its path, but God said, Because of the Lord's anger, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah. You might think that history is ordered through a strange set of circumstances that have nothing to do with the sovereignty of God and the plan of God and the purposes of God, but you would be greatly mistaken. God knows exactly what's happening. God has a plan and a purpose as things unfold. You know, many of you have read the scripture where it says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but sometimes the Lord, in His grace and His mercy, allows us to explore what some of those secret things might be. It says, for because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah till He finally cast them out from His presence, and note it says. From his presence. Where was his presence? It is in Jerusalem. It is the holy city. Remember, this is the place where the temple was. This is the place where the sacrifices are offered. This is the place where the prayers are made. This was the place where people were supposed to make contact with the true and the living God. And it says, then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Remember Jeremiah's reoccurring message. Your sin has found you out. God is going to send Babylon to punish you and submit. Jeremiah gets accused of being a bad citizen, even a traitor, but Zedekiah rebels against the king of Babylon. Again, it becomes a type and a picture. Of rebellion against authorities. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign. In the tenth month. On the tenth day of the month. That Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon. And all his army came against Jerusalem. And encamped against it. And they built a siege wall all around it. The t- ninth year. The tenth month. Make a little note on your little calendar. Read. Dateline. January. 588 B.C. The Babylonians lay siege to Jerusalem. Does that come as a little bit of a shock to you that dates matter? Were you in school and did you hate to learn dates? Why do I have to know when the Declaration of Independence was written? Why do I have to know when the Constitution was signed? What does it matter? What does it matter about this and what does it matter about that? Because God marks the days, listen carefully, of surrender... And God marks the days of rebellion. God marks the days of surrender. And God marks the days of rebellion. Put it on your calendar. What is today? November. Mark the date down. It's a new day. It's a new day. The United States of America has made a choice. They've made a choice about a direction that they're going to go. And remember, all the time, whether we're collectively as a nation or individually, we are making the choice to walk away from God or we're walking towards God's plans and purposes. We're walking with the Lord in the direction of grace and mercy or we're walking away from God. Russell Dilday gives a long but important description of the siege. The Nebuchadnezzar and all of his army came around Jerusalem and encamped against it. They built a siege wall. I want you to picture Jerusalem. I want you to picture its walls. And I want, to, I want you to picture a siege ramp that is made as they attack the wall. Now, this is a fairly long quote, but I want you to listen. Siege warfare was a cruel but effective military strategy in the ancient East. Rather than making a concentrated assault to break down fortifications and overwhelm the defenders of the city, siege warriors simply surrounded the city. They cut off access to food and in some cases water. Then they patiently waited until the inhabitants ran out of supplies and they began to starve and they were ready to surrender. This tactic took longer, but it cost fewer lives on the part of the invaders. The siege wall in verse one was a mound of earth piled up by slave labor to a level somewhat higher than the city wall itself. From the siege wall, the attackers could shoot at the defenders on the walls of the city. If the siege wall was close enough, as it was in some cases, battering rams could be used to break down the defenses. A few years ago, standing on the hilltop of the fortress of Masada in the Dead Sea, and that's it, by the way, I... Look down on a siege wall that the Romans had built nearly 2000 years before in order to overwhelm a stubborn garrison from the hilltop built nearly on top of the hilltop, you can see the ruins of a series of Roman garrisons that are set in a ring around Masada to cut off the supplies. And if you ever have the opportunity to go with me to Israel, you'll go to the top of the mountain. You'll see the siege ramp. You'll see the remnants of the Roman garrisons that literally surrounded Masada to cut off the supplies. But the ingenious fortress built by Herod the Great held enough food and water to last for years. Furthermore, its elevated location and high walls made it practically unapproachable by enemy troops. The only way the superior Roman army could conquer Eleazar, the commander of Masada and the heroic Jewish defenders, was to build a dirt assault ramp that would allow the imperial troops to storm Masada's walls. Furthermore, that task would have been impossible if the Roman general... Silva had not used thousands of Jewish slaves to build the ramp. For from their superior position on the fortifications high above the plain, Eleazar and his soldiers could have easily killed any workers who attempted to construct such a ramp. But when they discovered that the ramp builders were Jewish slaves... They couldn't bring themselves to kill their own countrymen. So the defenders of Masada watched helplessly as the ramp grew longer and longer and higher and higher each day. Finally, one evening in the spring of A.D. 73, it became obvious that the next morning, the Roman siege machines and battering rams would be pushed up the ramp and the fortress would be conquered. That night, Eleazar and his brave zealots decided to take their own lives rather than let Rome kill them or enslave them. Each soldier killed his own family. And then 10 were selected. To kill the rest. One of the ten was picked. To kill the nine others. And then after setting fire to the fortress. He took his own life. When the invaders broke through the next morning. And discovered 960 bodies of courageous people. Who chose death over slavery. The dirt ramp is still there. 200 feet high. 640 feet long. Nebuchadnezzar's siege ramp would have looked very, very much like that. And it becomes a type and a picture. Because when you see the world in which we live taken captive and Satan captures our brothers and sisters and uses them to build the instruments we have hard choices to make, just like they had hard choices to make. So the city was besieged until the 11th year. This is what it says in verse 5 of King Zedekiah. That means that the siege lasted two years or 18 months. In verse 6, by the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. I want you to think about this. The famine was so severe that the people were at the point just literally of starvation and extinction. Other scriptures tell us that it became so dramatic and so problematic that the people resorted to cannibalism. In Jeremiah chapter 38 verses 2 and 9 and Lamentations chapter 4 verses 3 through 10 and Ezekiel chapter 5 verse 10 describes these horrendous conditions where people... Are ready to die. Now I need you to understand what's happening. Jeremiah attempted to persuade King Zedekiah to surrender in order to save the people from starvation. But the king's heart was so hardened towards the Lord that he refused to listen. Zedekiah was committed to seeing his own people die rather than obey the Lord. And some people are exactly that same way. They don't care who their sin hurts. They don't care whose marriage is destroyed. They don't care what kinds of children are affected. They understand and they continue in a course of rebellion and wickedness because they think that they've earned the right to be in charge of their own life. And in verse seven, it says, then the city wall was broken through and all the men of war fled and they went out of the city at night by way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were near the city all around and they went out by way of the plain. They headed east down the slopes to the plain of Jericho. And when Zedekiah was running for his life, his own men abandoned him. It says in verse 8, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king. They overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. So they took the king and they brought him to the king of Babylon. Apparently, the king of Babylon had made his way north to Syria to a place called Riblah in the land of Hamath. And there he pronounced judgment on him. In other words, this is war and this is a war tribunal. And he pronounces judgment on the king who refuses to submit to the king of Babylon. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And he killed all the princes of Judah and Riblah. In other words, because of his rebellion, because of his disobedience, because of, of his refusal to heed the message of Jeremiah, he watched his own children being butchered. There is something worse than dying. And that's seeing your children die. It was Jayburn and McGee who said, my friends, there's only one thing worse than going to hell. And that's holding the hand of your child as you go to hell. Really? Moms and dads, brothers and sisters? In rebellion and disobedience, you're willing to take your own children with you? In verse 10 it says, Then the king of Babylon killed the sons. In verse 11, it says, he also put out the eyes of Zedekiah and the king of Babylon, bound him in bronze fetters and took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. Do you know what that passage is right there in verse 11? It becomes the perfect description of what sin does to you if you let it. This is the picture of what sin does. It blinds you. It binds you. It Prisons imprisons you. It kills you. You might think that you see everything clearly right now. And you might think that you're free to do whatever you want. And you might think that you can come and go as you please. Do you know what the Bible says? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And I want you to note just a little tiny notation in verse 11. He bound him in bronze fetters. I'm going to suggest to you as we continue the chapter that those bronze shackles were made from the very treasures of the temple as they melted down the bronze of the temple and they made shackles for the prisoners. What used to be a picture of their wealth will become the very thing that the enemy will use to imprison them and march them to the place of captivity. And that's what sin does. And look at verse 12. Now, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem he burned the house of the Lord in the king's house. All the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. This is exactly what Jeremiah had predicted. You're going to be taken. The king of Babylon is going to come. He's going to destroy the temple. He's going to d- destroy everything. Nebuzeradan burned the temple and then systematically began to destroy Jerusalem. Nebuzeradan was assigned the task. By the king of Babylon to be in charge of the demolition of the rebellious people. Their temple and their dwellings. And you have to understand something. So much is going on in the passage. This is heartbreaking. In other words, as you look at the temple of Solomon, and I should have gotten an image of the capture of Jerusalem and the temple of Solomon. Remember, Solomon's temple was magnificent. It was beautiful. It was a wonder of the world. This is the place where sacrifice and communication with God. This is the place of praise. This is the place where the people of Israel looked to God for forgiveness of sin. This was the place where they thought it was unthinkable. That God had made so many promises and had made such an incredible monetary investment in the preservation of this place that he could allow it to be destroyed. Jeremiah said it would be destroyed. And then they watched it being destroyed. You've heard preachers say, look around you. It's all going to burn. And you might think, that's not been my experience. I woke up, the birds are singing, it was a relatively beautiful day. It looks like everything is continuing the way it has always continued. But make no mistake about it, the Bible makes it abundantly clear things aren't going to always be the same. That we are on a march towards judgment. That God is going to judge the world and he's going to judge the world that rejects Christ. And look at verse 14 and all the army of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians who were with the captain of the guard, broke down all the walls of Jerusalem all around. Remember, breaking down the wall of a city means all of its defense capabilities are gone. The temple is gone. The Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poor people. The rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the craftsmen. The craftsmen were those people who had were skilled laborers who could be used in Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and and farmers. In other words, the poorest Of the poorest people who had nothing. Rather than let it go back into a wilderness, he allows this few, few remnant to remain. And then look what it says in verse 17. The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord. These are the gigantic columns that stood in the face of Solomon's temple and the carts and the bronze sea. That were in the house of the Lord. The Bronze Sea is a gigantic laver. Um, in Spanish, la lava means to wash. Laver is the place where you would wash the sacrifice. Imagine a child's waiting pool. Where it would be big enough to put a cow in. And literally um, scrub the cow down. That's what the sea is that we're in the house of the Lord. The Chaldeans, they broke it in pieces and they carried all their bronze to Babylon. In other words, the bronze pillars because of the importance and significance of the the temple, there's this detailed description that's given of its destruction. Now remember, the Babylonians are pagans. They are pagan, pagan people. In Babylon they have ziggurats. In Babylon they have temples. In Babylon they have false gods. They understand somewhat the meaning of the temple. They understand somewhat the meaning of worship. But remember, they're idolaters and there's usually statues of gods and goddesses is everywhere, but there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing to indicate worship to the Babylonians, because remember, the the people of Israel worshiped an invisible God. So the Babylonians in their mind are thinking that the Jews are atheists. In their mind, these people have no God. They have no God and they have no allegiance and they will they'll sign on to pagan gods in order to try and fit in with the crowd. So in one sense, I'm going to suggest to you that the Babylonians don't understand the significance and the meaning of the temple as they're burning the temple, as they're dismantling the temple. They have no idea. That this is the place. The central place of the religious Jew about what it means to be able to experience forgiveness of sin and have a right relationship with God. You see, for the Jew, the temple was like. Jesus should be for the Christian. You see, for you. You have a Bible and we thank God for our Bible and you have a church and we thank God for our church. But your life isn't hidden in a book or in a place. It is in the person of Christ. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having life and love and forgiveness apart from Jesus? There's no such thing. Without his sacrifice, without his life, without his death, without his resurrection, we could have a party and we could join a club and we could have a common interest in the history uh, or in the future. We could we could gather together for any number of reasons. But the truth is the thing that brings us together is the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's died on the cross for us and that he's rose from the dead. And for these Jewish people, the destruction of the the temple, in a very real way, was the undermining of their faith. So the scriptures note four details. Number one, the Babylonians break up the massive bronze pillars. And in, in the bronze water cart, the bronze sea, the water basin, the gigantic tub used to clean the sacrifices. They break them up in order to make them easier to transport to Babylon. Number two, they crated up and carried off the bronze utili- utensils, the articles that was used in the temple service. They packed up the articles of silver and gold in ver- verse 19. They took so much bronze that it, it could not be weighed without first being melted down. And, and as you read it in verse 17, it says the bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord, the carts, the bronze sea, um, they carried them away. Verse 18, they also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the bowls, the spoons, the bronze utili- utensils with which with the priests ministered. In verse 19, the basins, the fire pans, the bowls, the pots, the lampstands, the spoons, the cups, whatever was solid gold and whatever was solid silver. The captain of the guard took away. For Babylon, this is like capturing Fort Knox. Remember, these utensils were sacred. They were set apart for service to God. In other words, it wasn't just simply the wealth of a nation. It was the wealth of a nation represented in service to God. And in verse 20, the two pillars, one sea, the 12 bronze bulls, which were under the carts, which King Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze, all these articles were beyond measure. That means there was so much of it you couldn't even calculate its weight. Now, concerning the pillars, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits. Remember how far a cubit is? It's from the middle, from your elbow to your middle finger. It was about 18 inches. It's, you, you hear about this measure even when in the book of Genesis, when Noah builds the ark. It's a cubit. So, figure about 18 inches at 18 cubits a measuring line of 12 cubits could measure its circumference and the thickness was four fingers it was hollow that is the pillar a capital of bronze was on it and the height of one capital was five cubits with a network of pomegranates all around the capital all the bronze the second pillar with pomegranates was the same there were 96 pomegranates on the sides all the pomegranates all around the network were 100 remember they couldn't represent images and so they would take these symbols these are Jewish symbols within a pomegranate, there were six hundred and thirteen seeds, which is to constantly remind them of the six hundred and thirteen laws that had been given. The reason why they're going to such extraordinary lengths to talk about this is. Years, 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 years were devoted to this particular place, and now it's being judged Some of you must have watched the news last week when Hurricane Sandy hit the Jersey Shore and Staten Island and Manhattan. You must have seen some of the devastation. You must have remembered some of what happened with Katrina. You must have seen how people's lives and how their homes and how their livelihoods were just simply taken away in a moment. And with the destruction of the temple, with the outworking of the judgment, came this horrific emptiness. And then the exile to Babylon. Look in verses 24 through 30. The captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. In other words, these were... The leaders and the keepers of the temple. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war. Seven men of the king's close associates who were found in the city. The principal scribe of the army who mustered the people of the land. And 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. All of the elite. All of the white collar workers, all of the people who had training and Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Why? Because they're going to be charged with war crimes. Remember, this is the judgment. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death. In the land of Hamath, thus Judah was carried away, captive from its own land. In that simple sentence, it sums up the entire book of Jeremiah. The judgment is taken. The captivity is taken. The wages of sin is death. The judgment has come. The prophecy is fulfilled. Mass executions of the leadership. It becomes a type in a picture. Of a future judgment. These are the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive in the seventh year. Three thousand and twenty three Jews. Now, by the way, this information is valuable to the historian and the Bible student simply because it contains information that's nowhere else in the Bible. So if you're like a. Nerd. Like a Bible nerd. And like things are. Really, really, really important to you. This becomes a really, really important passage for people who are trying to put together the chronologies and the histories so that they can understand what has happened. So the writer seems to have adopted the Babylonian calendar at this point. And and I think that this for, for the for the the person Who is a scholar and for the person who wants to resolve and reconcile all things. This is this is how we can reconcile the difference in the dates between verse 12 and later in in verse 29 in the seventh year. Think five ninety seven B.C. Nebuchadnezzar takes Jerusalem. He deports three thousand and twenty three Jews. The historian in 2 Kings chapter 24 verse 12 gives the number as 8,000 and 10,000 and people say, see, I told you the Bible is a confusing mass of, of, of confusion and contradiction. I mean, how come it says here that there were 3,023 Jews, but in 2 Kings chapter 24 verse 12 it says that there were 8,000? Again, The problem is easily resolved in the book of Jeremiah. It's talking about men only in the book of Second Kings. It's talking about women and children. And so they round up the numbers. And I'm just saying that for the skeptic who might be listening to my tape. Thank you, skeptic, for listening in. The 18th or the 19th year, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar carries away an an additional 832 persons from Jerusalem. And again, the count might seem really, really low, but most died in the siege. The others were executed. The king left the poor in the land. And so guess what? The amount of captives that were taken was very, very limited. But you know what was important about those captives? It wasn't just simply about judgment. It was also about a preparation for restoration because God had unfinished business with the Jewish people. He's going to call a Messiah. A Messiah is going to come. A Messiah is going to be born. He's going to live and die on the cross and rise from the dead. And so in verse 30. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, 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 the captain of the guard, carried away captive of the Jews, 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600 and the fall of Jerusalem and the subsequent captivity becomes this huge type and picture of judgment and the consequences of sin. And so, again... We continue with the liberation of Jehoiachin. In verse 31 it says, Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, that evil Merodach, the king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. Dateline, 561 B.C. Twelfth month. This is the Hebrew month of Adar. This is the month reckoned on the Jewish calendar between February and March. So the date, 561 B.C., twelfth month Adar, 25th day. Why is this important? This is the Babylonian New Year. This is Christmas, Easter, Easter. And every feast day rolled into one on the Babylonian calendar. This is the day when Babylonians go wild. Again, why is this important? Because apparently the king is going to offer an amnesty. The king of Babylon. How long is Jehoiachin in jail? Remember, his father has been killed. He has reigned only for a few months. He's taken to Babylon. He has spent 37 years in jail. You can look it up in Second Kings chapter 24, verses 7 through 16. Nebuchadnezzar dies 561 B.C. His son Evil Merodach becomes king of Babylon. You're probably wondering why was he named Evil Merodach? Because Darth Vader was already taken. No, that's not why. Because Darth Vader will be way, way... But it is kind of a strange name to name your child, huh? I think I'll call him Evil Maradoc. Actually, the name is Akkadian. In the Akkadian language, it's Hamel Marduk. It means literally the man who is Marduk's man. In the Hebrew spelling, the writer gives it an insulting pun. Ewel, in the Hebrew language means fool. And so the Hebrew writer translates this, the fool who worships Marduk. He reigns for two years. He's put to death by his evil brother-in-law who succeeds him. To the throne according to Josephus' antiquities. And so in the text when it says he lifted up his head. It's, a, it's an idiomatic expression which means that he graciously gave him freedom. So the implication is that evil Merodach esteems the former king more than the other captives. He gives him a place of honor. In fact, he becomes a frequent guest at the king's table. The king gives him a regular allowance for the rest of his life. It says in verse 32, and he spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Remember, Babylon has gone, has swallowed up the ancient world and all of the rulers have come to Babylon because in that culture, they are his trophies. And the same is true in the world in which you live. The people who live in this world are Satan's trophies. He wants to take them. And he wants to capture them. And he wants to imprison them. And he wants to show them off because of his strength and power. Does Satan sometimes offer what looks like liberation? Yeah. Hey, just come with me. I'll make sure you're taken care of for the rest of your life. But there's another element that we might think of. And that's God is merciful in judgment. His mercy is great, according to numbers 14:18. His mercy is enduring, according to First Chronicles 16:34. His mercy is abundant, His mercy is tender, His mercy is rich, His mercy is saving. Is it possible that people who are taken and then they are imprisoned, that God graciously, even in the bitter circumstances of discipline and judgment, God is gracious and merciful? I think the answer is yes. The Lord is mighty to save and deliver and conquer and strengthen. And so it says that Jehoiachin changed from his prison garments and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. The picture in this final epilogue, if you will, is a sense in which. The unfolding is beginning to take place as you begin to understand that the future, that there is a future, that there is a future. You see, when everything has been taken away from you and everybody that you love has been killed and you are in a strange place with strange people and strange customs and you know that you don't belong there, you know that God has another plan and a purpose. And you're wondering, you're wondering, you're wondering how you're ever going to get back. That's What the people reading the book of Jeremiah would have been thinking, remember, I've told you often that it was this scroll that Daniel in his captivity would unfold and he would read and it would give him comfort and hope. It says in verse 34, and as for the provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day until the day of his death. All the days of his life with the captives spread throughout the land, with the Jews scattered in the four corners of the known world, every Jew would have been asking, how is it possible that God's promises could come true? How is that even a possibility? How is God going to bring us back to a place of freedom where we belong in the land that God has established for us? And you see, again, it becomes a type and a picture for the person who's wandered away from Jesus and wandered into sin and wandered into a lifestyle that is not honoring and pleasing to God And you're wondering, how can I ever get back? How can I ever find my way back? How can I find myself in a place of usefulness to God once again? How is God going to fulfill his promise? Well, read the book of Daniel. Read the book of Nehemiah. Read the book of Ezra. And then all of a sudden you're going to see the unfolding redemption as God is working to bring the people back so that the Messiah can be born in the end. In the end, like every book in the Bible, Jesus becomes the satisfying solution to the problem of captivity, to the problem of sin. In Jeremiah, we've gleaned several lessons. Let me just go over them quickly. Number one, in difficult days, we need to hear from God and heed the word of God. Difficult days might be ahead for you. Some of you might suffer like you've never suffered before. Some of you might have a whole lot more. Most of you will have a whole lot less. So we need to be sensitive to one another. In difficult days, we need to hear from God and heed the word of God. Number two, true prophets of God are usually, if not always, persecuted. It's true in Je- Jeremiah's case, huh? He did exactly what God wanted him to do, and he suffered. Is it possible that you could do exactly what God wants you to do? And it could cost you. It is possible. And number three, true patriotism is not blind to sin. No one is a greater patriot than Jeremiah. He loves his country and he loves his people and he loves the Lord. And he had an obligation to say exactly what God wanted him to say. Number four, God's servants occasionally have their doubts and their failings. And we saw that in Jeremiah. There were moments of pain. There were moments of incarceration. There were moments, really, Lord, have I really heard from you? Am I doing exactly what it is that you wanted me to do? And number five, the important thing is not success, but faithfulness. Jeremiah gives the message for 40 years. How many people respond? Tragically, none. Is it possible that you could do exactly what God has asked you to do in exactly the way that God has asked you to do it? And there's no change in your husband, in your wife, in your children, in your community. Number six, the greatest reward of ministry isn't simple faithfulness, it's to become like Jesus. Because you see, in the journey that Jeremiah takes, he has to depend upon the God of heaven, and it forges his character. And number seven, God is king, and the nations of the world are under his control. The Lord. Is the King of Heaven, this nation and all the nations of the earth ultimately will yield and bend to the sovereignty of God and to the majesty of Jesus and to the plan of God. And we're left with that truism. Someone has said, We judge others by what they do. And we judge ourselves by what we mean. I know what I meant. But make no mistake about it. God knows what you mean. And God knows what you do. Will God judge us simply on the basis of what we stand for? Or will God judge us on the basis of what we stand up for? Do you know what the difference between standing and standing up? One is an ability to articulate what you really believe. The other is a willingness to live out what you really believe in the real world. In the difficult days, when you know the truth and you refuse to be blind to sin and you experience the doubt and the failings and you remember, you remember, you remember that in the grand scheme of things, success isn't what we long for. It's faithfulness to our king. And so we end Jeremiah.